We are continuing in a sermon series this morning titled Burnout. We are actually closing that one today. Uh, as Reagan said, next week, if you've trickled in late as we can at 9.30 hour, next week we are not going to be here at 9.30. We're not going to be anywhere at 9.30. We're going to be in the sanctuary at 10.50. Say, I will be in the sanctuary at 10.50. Good. You've all committed to your pastor to be there, so you have to now. Otherwise, you're not going to heaven. Just kidding. So, uh, last two weeks, we've talked about um, the comparison game uh, two weeks ago. Last week, we had a big VBS celebration in here where we got to learn about what the kids learned about, actually, during VBS, which was the gifts that God's given them. This week, we're going to talk about what it means to ask for help and why asking for help is so important in our lives. Because I don't know about you, but a lot of times when I end up in a place where I am burned out, as we say, uh, when I feel like I just can't go any further, when I just want to run, I want to wash my hands of whatever I'm doing, a lot of times, a lot of times it's because I simply didn't know how to ask for help in the moment. So let's talk about that today. In order to talk about that, we're going to look at a story from a book of the Bible called the Book of Acts. And I don't want to assume that you even know what it is. So the Book of Acts is really kind of like the Gospel of Luke part two, right? It's by the same author. It's a continuation of that story. And where the gospels are the story of Jesus Christ and, and how he came to earth and how he led us and how he died for us and rose again and saves us through his death and resurrection. Uh, the book of Acts is about the beginning of the early church. It's about this movement that doesn't even know they're this new church. They think that they're this movement within the Jewish faith and, and, they're, and they're spreading this message, this powerful message of the Messiah has come, and they're trying to say, this Jewish faith is for everybody. That's what the book of Acts is all about. It's about these men and women who are being led by the Holy Spirit, and they don't know where it's going. They're sort of figuring it out as they go along. They don't have a book of discipline. They don't have a church structure. They don't have roles of ordination. They don't have elders and deacons yet. They don't, they don't have these kinds of things. They're just figuring it out, and they're going wherever the Holy Spirit leads them. And the story this morning comes from chapter 6. So this is still really early on in the early church's history. They don't have a lot figured out yet. But what they do know, what we'll find in the scripture this morning, what they do know is that two things are really important if we're going to be a successful ministry, if we're going to be a, success, a successful movement. Number one, we've got to keep telling the story of Jesus Christ. And number two, we've got to understand how that changes the way we live in this world. These are the things they're going to be wrestling with in chapter 6 that we're going to look at this morning. Before we do that, let's, let's pray together. Holy and gracious God, as we sit in a big stone church that's been around for almost 75 years with central cooling and heating and pews and infrastructure and pastors and lay staff and apportionments and all of these things draw us back to a time when the faith was raw and simple and powerful and life-changing. Allow us to hear the story this morning of an early church and allow us to see ourselves in this story so that we can see their powerful witness of what it means to ask for help. Keep us walking humbly in your will. Amen. 
We're going to start in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. Um, so to set the stage, things that you need to know about this. This is taking place in Jerusalem. Uh, and in Jerusalem, the predominant cultural group is, yes, the Jewish people. And there's this other group that lives in this area too called the Hellenists. These are Greek people. Jer Israel was under the rule of the Greco-Roman Empire. And so in Jerusalem, you had these sort of two camps of people. You had the Jewish people and you had the Greek people the Hellenists, as our scripture is going to call them. And uh, one of the practices of the Jewish faith was to send food out for widows and orphans in their community because the Bible in the Old Testament says again and again and again, take care of the widow and orphan, and they took that seriously. Um, and, and what we're going to find is that this group of Hellenists, the Greeks who are living in Jerusalem, even though they are the occupying people, in a weird sort of twist, it's their widows and orphans that might be the lowest on the totem pole. And so it's going to bring up the sort of social crisis uh, that the church has to deal with. That's the basics of what you need to know as we read this. It says, now during those days when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews. So the Greeks in the Christian movement were complaining to the Jewish people in the Christian movement um, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And, and the 12 called together, the 12 disciples, they called together the whole community of the disciples and said, it is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Okay, let's stop there. So we've only got six verses this morning that we're working with, and we're going to chew on them and chew on them and chew on them. So we're going to stop there. That's three verses. Um, you might think, God, that sounds really heartless. Are the disciples saying that we need to be preaching the gospel, not helping these poor people eat? No, that's not what they're saying. Uh, that, that might seem like what they're saying, but what they're saying is, remember what I said at the beginning of the message, that they're saying we've got to keep the main thing the main thing. The social practice of feeding the widows is important, yes. But if we do that at the detriment of us being able to share the message of Jesus Christ, then what are we doing here? Are we becoming just another social outreach or are we doing something different? And so they're saying, they're not saying don't serve the tables, they're saying, don't serve the tables if that's going to completely take us away from sharing the gospel. They're saying we, 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 we're in this tension. We know we need to serve the tables, but we also need to share the gospel. So what are we going to do about this? Now, I want to stop here for a moment because this message is going to have some really basic come back to me kind of, kind of truths that, that are simple and you've heard them before, but it's good to come back to them. The church is realizing for maybe the first time in its ministry the same thing that you and I realize again and again in life, and that is that in this world, there is more to do than can ever be done by you or by me. There is more to do than can ever be done, which is a great quote. It's a great truth. It's also a lyric from The Lion King. Uh, <laughs> more to do than can ever be done. Am I right, Didi? Did you like that? Can I be in the band, please? Please? No? Okay. Um, Lion King was my jam growing up. Um, it's true, yes, it's a great lyric from the circle of life. It's also a true statement in life. There is more to do in this life than any one of us can do. Um, and the church is wrestling this, they're realizing this, they're realizing that they cannot at both times individually be in Jerusalem serving tables and also be in Rome and in Ephesus and in Corinth and in Thessalonica sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. They cannot be in both places at once, not as individuals. Now, they can as a movement. We're going to get there in a second. But the first thing we have to acknowledge, if we're going to talk about asking for help, the first thing that we've got to acknowledge is stare us in the face is that we cannot do everything. We can't. 
You can't do everything. I know Wonder Woman's an awesome movie right now. You're not Wonder Woman. I'm not Wonder Woman. And it's not because I don't have a super kicking skirt. It's because I can't do everything. I just can't. I've got to decide, do I need to be in Jerusalem serving tables or do I need to be in Rome preaching the gospel? Because both are important and both need to happen. And if we convince ourselves that we can do everything, then we're going to get stuck in one place and the other thing is going to get left undone. Because we're going to assume that it's all on us and we've got to do everything and we simply can't. So my question for us this morning is, do you understand that you cannot be in Jerusalem waiting tables and in Rome and in Ephesus and in Corinth preaching the gospel? Put that in your life. You can't fill your calendar with 87,000 things and accomplish all of them to an A-plus degree. It's just not possible. You cannot do everything that this world needs you to do. It's just not possible. And I know some of us really, really hate having to acknowledge that, but it's the God's honest truth. There are things that we are going to have to choose to say yes to and things that we're going to have to choose to say no to. Who likes saying no in the room? Be proud. If you are good at saying no, I want you to raise your hand. Reagan Gilliland, good for you. I was looking. I was looking. If you're good at saying no, awesome. Please teach the rest of us. Let's practice saying no. I want you to say no to me right now. One, two, three. Say no. 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 I want you to say no. It's like Say it firmly. No. Boom. Okay, you've done it twice on a Sunday morning. Do, go do it third time this week sometime, all right? Saying no is hard to do, but the reality is we cannot be in Jerusalem and Rome and Ephesus and Corinth at the same time as individual people. We're going to have to choose what we say yes and no to. Now, how do we choose what to say yes and no to? That's an interesting question. And to do that, we're going to look at the fourth verse of this chapter. So let's keep reading. It says, therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, will devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the Lord. So the church, for the very first time, is learning how to divide and conquer, basically, in terms of their labor. They know that we're a movement, we're a body of many people, we can't individually be everywhere, but we can as a movement do all things that we need to do. So how do we do that? Well, we're going to divide ourselves into different types of callings. Um, we're going to decide what is it that God is calling us to. Is God calling me to serve tables in Jerusalem, or is God calling me to preach the gospel in Rome and Ephesus and Corinth and Thessalonica? And so... One of my favorite quotes uh, that I want to bring up, it, it, one of my favorite theologians, I bring him up a lot in here, his name is Rabbi Abraham Heschel. He was alive in the 20th century. He was a rabbi and a scholar, and he marched with Martin Luther King Jr., and just all-around fascinating person, um, fascinating Jewish theologian that has a lot of good stuff to say for Christians, too. Um, he wrote this book on the Sabbath, and I'm really bad at actually resting. I'm really good at like distracting myself, but I'm really bad at actually resting. And so it's a great book. If you want to get in touch with what it means to have a Sabbath, I recommend Sabbath by Abraham Heschel. Um, in the opening chapter, he's talking about the difference between labor and toil. Because in the Old Testament, there's these two words that are used, and, and we might think that they're used interchangeably, but he makes a case that they're not. There's a difference between labor and toil. The word that we see as labor in the Old Testament is, is a word that means the work that we do, that, that yes, it might be hard, yes, it might be difficult, but it's fruitful, and it's good, and it's meaningful, and it builds up God's kingdom, and it accomplishes good for the world around you. That's what labor is. And when you rest from labor, you feel good because you know you've done something with your life. 
And he says toil, that word we see for toil in the Old Testament, that is almost always used to describe work that is hard and difficult, but it's meaningless and it's fruitless and it doesn't do anything for anybody and all it does is exhausts you and it's, and it's soul crushing. It's not spirit giving, it's not life giving, it's soul crushing. And when you rest from toil, you're just scared to death because you know toil is coming up again on Monday. Anybody ever been in a position of toiling their life away? Yeah? Anybody? I was like, oh, that's me right now. Yeah, I'm thinking about Monday morning tomorrow. There's a difference between labor and toil in this life. And what I want to say here is just like the church has to decide what's labor and what's toil for us, what, what, what's life-giving for me and what's life-giving for you and what's soul-crushing for me and what's soul-crushing for you. Um, I'm not gonna make them like wave their hands or stand up, but I think there's a couple in here this morning that I'm doing a premarital counseling session with after worship. And I love premarital counseling. It's one of my favorite things. Weddings are fun. It's like one of the best parts of our job, right? Um, and one of the things I love about premarital counseling is, is that you get to have these really deep conversations with people and you get them opening up to each other and, and, and they begin to see each other in sort of a new light because they're talking about really the, the core essence of who they are and what makes them radically aligned with each other and what makes them radically different too. Those of us who are in relationships or who, who are married, you know that the person you're with, in some ways they are radically aligned with you and in some ways they are radically different from you. Amen? That was way too quiet. Y'all are trying to be nice. It's very true. <laughs> So Reagan and I, we are radically aligned in a lot of ways, right? We're both pastors. We both have a passion for the gospel. We both want to work in churches our whole lives. God bless us. And, uh, and we're also radically different in a lot of ways. One of the funny things about premarital counseling is getting to those things that make us different. Because what I tell them is that, that the things that, that will eat away at your marriage, at your relationship, it's rarely the big, big things. Like there's big crises that happen, and those are tough, and, and we have to work through those. But the things that really eat away at you day after day, week after week, year after year, they're little, they're itty-bitty things. Are they not? Amen? Yeah, y'all are getting real quiet now. <laughs> so like for Reagan and I, we got married, and we realized very quickly that it wasn't, you know, finances. It wasn't this huge issue of this, that, or the other. It was chores. <laughs> yeah, now we're getting, mm-hmm. I'm getting some husbands nodding too now. It was chores. Like I didn't know there was a clean side of the sink before I got married. I had no idea. The sink that we bought in my house growing up, it didn't come with a clean side. Like, it was a dirty side of the sink at both sides. Um, I didn't realize that, that towels would dry faster if they were hung up. I thought they, drew, they, they would dry just as good on the ground. I had no idea. I had no, it was mind-blowing to me. Um, and so in our, in our marriage, we've had to go back. We've had so many conversations about chores. It really cracks me up. Little things. But one of the most funny breakthroughs we had recently was we were talking about um, how much Reagan hates to go to the store. Like, if Reagan knows she's gone to hell, if she's walking through the gates that says, welcome to Kroger. Like, she, she knows, like, I screwed up. I made a mistake. This is not where I'm supposed to be. <laughs> and so, meanwhile, I'm like, wait, you hate going to the store? She's like, I can't stand it. It takes forever, and I just want to be at home with my daughter, and I hate having to go and find the things in the aisles, and I forget something. I got to go back. And I'm, and I'm sitting there going, I love going to the store. Like, I love going to the store. I am so introverted. I'm like, give me a long list where I can be gone for like an hour, and I can get a podcast going, put in my headphones, and I'm bebopping through, and I'm checking the price tags, and I'm looking at the little number, the price per unit. Come on, say amen, somebody. That's fun. I saved us 40 bucks on groceries yesterday. It was awesome. I loved it. We discovered that for me, going to the store was labor. 
And for Reagan, it was toil. <laughs> so in our lives, I know that's kind of like a silly illustration, but it's not. Go, if you were to do an inventory of your life and think about all the things that you do that feel like labor, that they're hard, yeah, they're hard, they're difficult. You know, like raising Andy, that's hard, that's not easy, right? But I love it, it's fruitful, it's fantastic. I would give my life for that, it's labor. My job, I love it, I would give my life for that, that's labor. Toil, man, going to like the fifth meeting of a day, ugh, kills me soul-crushing. I just want to get in my office and shut my door, right? Um, when the calendar is so filled up with all this stuff that we feel like we have to say yes to, it begins to feel like toil. What if you went through your life and you did an inventory and said, what feels like labor? What feels like toil? How can I move as much of my toil stuff off my calendar and add labor stuff? Things that are life-giving, that I want to do, that I want to spend my time doing. Now, now here's the caveat. We are always going to have toil in life, Right? Like, I can't stop going to meetings. I can't stop responding to emails, even though I want to. You know, I, I, I can't decide to just lock myself in my room and just watch Netflix all the time. Like, I can't, I can't do that. There's going to be parts of my life that I don't want to do that I have to do because it's called being an adult. Yes, mom and dad, I know. But how much of that stuff can we actually honestly say no to, that we can learn to say no to some of the toil that we're stuck doing in our life, and it's preventing us from doing some labor that we really need to do? some labor that would be awesome, some labor that we would love, that when we finally rested on our Sabbath, we would say, man, that was a great week. I can't wait to do that again. That was fantastic. So I'm not saying doing, I, don't, don't look at your whole life. Don't try to do some like universal, colossal life shift on Monday this week, right? Find one thing. What's one thing that's on your calendar that's just totally toilsome? And if you really wanted to, you could say no to it. You could get it right off your calendar if you really wanted to. And for whatever reason you haven't, but you could free up that time and allow yourself to be engaged in some labor instead, whether that's investing more in the work that you love doing or investing in your family or investing in your friends or whatever it is, whatever that labor looks like. As I think about the early church, I think about the seven that are commissioned. We're gonna talk about them in just a second. I think about what would it have been like if they'd been stuck waiting tables? <laughs> or what if the people who really wanted to wait tables were sent to go and preach the gospel? Do you know how bad that would have been? It would have been terrible. It's like sending Reagan to the store. Like, it's, it's good work. It's supposed to be done, but they're going to hate it. And it's not going to be done as well. Reagan wouldn't have saved us 40 bucks. I'll tell you that right now because I've seen her receipts. It doesn't happen. <laughs> when you send someone off to do toil instead of letting them stay and do labor, when you force yourself into a position of toil instead of allowing yourself to be in a position of labor, the world is not better for it. Your world is not better for it. Your life is not better for it. If you're sending someone who wants to wait tables out to preach the gospel, the whole time they're talking about Jesus, they're thinking, but those widows are hungry. How can I say anything good to these people here when I got people hungry in my home? Or if you got the people who want to preach the gospel waiting tables, they're out there, they're sitting there waiting tables, and they're thinking, we should be talking about Jesus. Like, this is important, but there's a whole world out there who doesn't know the name. Toil versus labor. Find one thing, just one thing this week. Move one thing off your toil list and maybe add one thing to your labor list and see if it makes your life a little bit more fun to live. So this week, the question is, what, what feels like toil and what feels like labor? I come back to that all the time in my life and I never get it perfectly right. There's so many things in my life that feel like toil. And, there, and you know, there's a lot of things that aren't going anywhere. But the more I can try to shift from toil to labor, the better my life gets time after time after time. And it's hard because I gotta say no. <laughs> I gotta say no to a lot of stuff to get there. All right, let's keep moving. Acts chapter six, continuing on in verses five and six. This is where we're gonna sort of land this morning. This is when they've 
They've set the criteria for who these seven are going to be that they're going to send out to preach the gospel. They gather them together, and they're going to lay hands on them as a, as a sign of blessing and anointing for them to go and do their work. So let's read that story now. What they said pleased the whole community, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, together with Philip. These get fun. Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Pumba, no, Parmenas, and Nicolaus a proselyte of Antioch. They had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. So let's talk really now at this point about why it is we don't ask for help. We can all agree that asking for help is important. Yes, we all, yeah, yeah, I know I should ask for help. Well, I thought through my life and I think about the times when I know I should ask for help and I don't. And why is that? And I think it really boils down to two things. The first one we'll talk about is, is pride. I think the, the number one reason a lot of us don't ask for help when we know that we need it is because we have too much pride. We are proud. We're too proud. Prideful, <laughs> this is a mini-sermon. Prideful is not a word. I almost said pride. Prideful is not a word. Uh, this is grammar Nazi Scott checking in. Uh, proud is the word. So when you're too proud, sorry. I just, I like to do the mini-sermons about words that don't actually exist. Um, so when we're feeling too proud in our life, uh, it prevents us from asking for help. Why? I imagine if I'm one of the people in the early church and I feel like there's this new exciting thing, they're going to send these seven people off to go and preach the gospel. Wow, that sounds really cool. And I don't actually stop to ask myself, what is it I should be doing? I just think, wow, that sounds really cool. This is, this is a really cool project in front of me. Maybe I should be, I should be the one doing this. You know, I really love Jesus. I should be the one going off and preaching the gospel. That sounds great. If I never actually ask myself if I should be doing that, if I never actually ask myself if I'm more gifted and equipped to be waiting tables than preaching the gospel, and I get sent off to do that, it's going to be done less effectively. I think sometimes we get caught up in this mindset that it always has to be us. Whatever the project or the task or the thing that's in front of us, it has to be us. It has to be us and no one else because it's on my plate, and I can't invite someone else into this because I know I can do it. I know I can do it. I know I can do it. I can't ask for help. Anybody ever been stuck in a moment of pride where you just refuse to ask for help because you feel like it's got to be you? You're the one that has to do it. <laughs> and the hard thing to accept is the reality that maybe I'm not the one that's supposed to go preach the gospel. Maybe there's someone else who's more equipped and, and, and better gifted for that mission. Maybe I'm supposed to be sitting here waiting tables. Or maybe I, I think I'm supposed to be sitting waiting tables. I'm supposed to be preaching the gospel. And I don't because I'm scared. And I don't want to go and ask somebody, hey, I really think I should be doing this, but I'm kind of scared. Can you help me out with this? Oof. Pride is a killer when it comes to asking for help because we convince ourselves that we don't actually need anybody else. Or we think that we'd be imposing upon them to ask them for help. Which kind of moves us into the second thing. Maybe, maybe your issue's not pride. Maybe you're like, Scott, I don't ask for help because I'm too proud. In fact, my self-esteem's not through the roof. It's through the floor. Because I think the other side of this issue is that a lot of times we don't ask for help because we're simply allowing our depression or our anxiety to control our lives. Now, I, I know I've talked about this in, in, in here in the past, but I think it's important, especially on a Sunday, I'm going to talk about asking for help um, and just with some stuff that, that, that has gone on in our extended community this week, I think it's important that we talk about this subject. Um, 
Because depression and anxiety are a real thing. That, 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 that is a thing that I know we're not going to raise hands, but I know if we were to do a poll in this room, there'd be a lot of hands in the air saying, that's why I don't ask for help. And I know that because I've been there. And I talk about this because I think that the, the church in general, universal church, throughout the eons of time, has done a really generally bad job of talking about mental health. It's done a really generally bad job of talking about subjects like depression and anxiety. And we'll try to say things like, well, just, you know, just, just pray. You know, Jesus will make you glad. Okay, great, thanks. Thanks for that. That's really making my, oh, yeah, mm-hmm. I'm just going to go sit in a dark room and pray my depression away. No, if you're depressed, don't go sit in a dark room and pray. It's a bad idea. Maybe sit in the park and pray. I don't know, get some sunshine, vitamin D. Um, I say that because I've sat in a dark room before. So, um, you know, some of you may know part of my story. So the, the moment that I realized that I was struggling with depression in my life, the moment that that sort of chapter began for me was in college. Uh, and there was a week in college that it got pretty bad and I just stopped going to class uh, altogether for a week in college, um, which was unusual for me. I was a pretty high achiever. And, 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 I, and I had a dorm room set up where um, my roommate and I each had separate rooms and then we had a shared living space. And so I just basically locked myself in my room for like a week solid I didn't really shower, which was not that unusual. Um, it was college. Um, I, wasn't sh- I wasn't getting out. I wasn't talking to people. I wasn't responding to texts or emails. I wasn't responding to professors asking where I was. Because I was at that point, I was super embarrassed. I thought, man, what is wrong with me? Why can't I just get up and go do what I know I need to do? Why can't I just get back to my life? There was something keeping me from that. And what was hard is that it took me sort of a full week to realize that there was this, there was this voice of negativity in my head saying, no, put it off. Don't, don't go do that. No, no, no. No, just stay in here one more day. Just keep watching those Family Guy reruns. They'll make your life so much better. Um, don't, don't get out. Don't shower. Don't, don't go do what you need to do. Because, you know, everyone's going to be embarrassed that, that for you. They're going to be ashamed of you, the fact that you've allowed yourself to get. Can you believe you allowed yourself to get here, Scott? That's the voice. Have you ever had a voice like that in your head before? And so by the grace of God, and I say by the grace of God, um, Towards the end of that week, I was able to allow that voice to quiet for long enough for me to call my mom, because uh, my mom's one of those people that I knew if I called, she would be there for me and say whatever needed to be said, and so I just said, I, I called her, I said, I, I don't really know what I'm calling you for, I just need you to know what's going on. Uh, this is what's happened, and I don't like it, and something's weird about me, and I just need some help, so I just needed you to know, and I feel like if you know, then maybe I will get up and take a shower and try to get on with my life, and and that's when she talked to me about her own walk through this. And she said, yeah, let's go talk to a doctor. And that is how my whole story with Scott and depressive personality began and learning how the medical system works and realizing how many resources there are out there. I say all of that, not so that we can come up to Pastor Scott and say, oh, I'm so sorry, Pastor Scott. That's not why I'm telling you this story. I tell you this story because I know, I know for a fact, there is somebody or somebody's in this room this morning who have that negative voice talking to them all the time, and for whatever reason, they've not been able to have that voice quiet, and they've not been able to ask for help, and they've been stuck like I've been stuck. And I want to tell you that it can get better, and that if you allow that voice to grow quiet just for a moment, by the grace of God, just for a moment, and you allow yourself to ask a friend or a family member or a pastor for help, then you can... The door opens for you to have access to resources that right now you don't think are available, and they are. And I believe in Jesus Christ, and I believe in therapists, and I believe in medication. Uh, and, I, and I think that's an important message to share when we're talking about asking for help on a Sunday morning. Um, so 
pride, depression, whatever you're into that spectrum is, whether you think that it's got to be you and no one else because you're just too proud, or whether you think, I'm supposed to be miserable, and this is the way it's just supposed to be, and I'm never going to get out of this situation, um, both of those answers are wrong. Asking for help is important, and I know that's extremely true because I noticed the end of this, this, um, this verse. You, you might miss it, and it's one of those parts of Scripture. I, I love Scripture because there's these parts that we'll read 30 times, and we'll skip right over them. Dee, you know that's true. dee has been re- reading. She's read more of the Bible than I have. Like, Dee needs to preach in here sometime. Um, it, you read Scripture time and time again, and there's these things that you skip past. And then the, on the 30th time, you go, have I missed that? Have I missed that? When there's this laying on of hands for the seven. Um, it's incredible because, you know, did you notice the names that they had? Um, this sort of getting back to the idea about, about being too proud. The, the names they had, Stephen, yeah, Philip, yeah, those are kind of typical names that we're used to hearing. Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, Nicolaus, those are a little different, yeah? It's because these are Hellenist names, Remember at the beginning we talked about how the Hellenists felt like they were kind of unspoken for, that people weren't really caring for their oppressed? And so we, we, we see these Hellenist names listed in the, the seven. And it makes me think about the fact that, that maybe the church actually had, it's fascinating. I mean, they were figuring this stuff out for the very first time. They understood cultural context ministry like immediately. It's fascinating. They realized we need to go spread the gospel to Greece in the Greco-Roman Empire. Who should we send? Probably a bunch of Jewish guys. No, that's not what they do. If we're going to go preach to the Greco-Roman Empire, we should probably send some Greeks because they're going to know what to say. They're equipped to do this kind of labor. This isn't going to be toilsome for them. They're going to be very effective. So they get to this laying on of hands. And I think about what these, what these men must have been feeling as they were being anointed and blessed to go and do this work. Do you think they were thinking to themselves, God, I wish I wasn't doing this? Do you think they were thinking to themselves, like, what a waste of my time. I can't believe they asked me to do this. This is so stupid. What do you think they're thinking in that moment? I've been in their position. I've had the bishop's hands placed upon my head. I know what they're thinking. It's a powerful thing. And here's the crazy part is, that image I want you to have in your head every time you ask someone else for help in your life. Because what you're doing when you ask someone for help is you're inviting them to enter a position of blessing. You're inviting them to be blessed and anointed to do the work that God has equipped them and called them to do. The seven were enthusiastic to get to the work that they were being asked to do. They couldn't wait. They were pumped And yet we think in our lives that, oh, I can't ask them for help because it's going to be such a burden for them. They're they're going to have to sacrifice for me. God, it's so selfish of me to ask someone else to give themselves up for my sake. Every time you think that, go back to Acts chapter 6 and look at the 7 and imagine what they're feeling. And so when you go and you ask your friend or your family member or your coworker or your pastor for help, I want you to imagine that you're not saying, oh, come help me, help me. I'm being selfish. Please come help me. No, what you're doing is you're laying a hand upon them and saying, I want to bless you to live out the call that that God has on your life. And I want to create a space where we can bless each other in this relationship because I need your help and no one else's. I need your help. It's not a selfish act to ask somebody for help. In fact, it might be selfless 
because you're creating an opening for someone to do what they feel equipped and called and gifted by God to do. I wouldn't be happier if everyone, if, if y'all never filled out a prayer request, that wouldn't make me happy. If I never got a text that said, hey, can we meet for coffee? That wouldn't make me happy. If you worked in your office and no one ever stepped into your door and said, hey, can you take a look at this? I'd love your help with this. Would you feel better? No, we, we love being asked for help, and yet we think that everyone else is going to hate it. <laughs> so I have to come back to the story again and again and realize that it's not selfish. It's not, selfish, it's not a selfish act to ask for help. I want to put this on the screens because I think it's important. It's not a selfish act to ask for help. It is a way to bless the gifted and called people in your life to serve the way God has called them to serve. If you don't believe it, that's okay. Go home, read that scripture again, think about it again until you do believe it, because I promise you it's true. You've got a whole network of people, you've got a whole world, a whole life full of people who are standing at the ready to help you with whatever you need, and all they're waiting is for you to ask. And it's not selfish, it's a blessing. It's a blessing for you, but it's a blessing for them. And I know that because I know the, the ministry and the mission, and I know the witness of the seven in Acts chapter six. Let us pray. God, this morning, we've heard a message that's really easy to hear and really hard to practice. And to be honest, as a preacher, it's really easy to preach, and it's even harder to practice. God, we live in a world that has somehow convinced us we should all stand on our own. We should all be responsible only for ourselves. When we fall down, we should pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And when we need help, we should just keep it to ourselves. God, this morning, if we've heard nothing else, I want everyone in this room to hear that asking for help is not a sign of weakness, it's a sign of strength. And God, I need to hear that too. In our lives as men and women, husbands and fathers, wives and mothers, sisters, brothers, employees, employers, stay-at-home parents, traveling parents, it can be really hard to know what to say yes and what to say no to. It can be harder still to say no to those toilsome things that we don't need to spend our time doing. And the hardest thing to do is to ask for help when we know we desperately need it. God, if there's anyone in the room who has a voice in their head telling them that they should be stuck, that they should put it off another day, that they deserve to be miserable, I ask that you'd speak clearly to them now and give them the confidence and courage to ask someone they love for help. God, for those of us who are simply too proud, who think too highly of ourselves, who think that we ought to be Superman or Wonder Woman, God, I ask that you would humble us and remind us that even you invite our help in building the kingdom of God. How much more should we invite the help of others? We thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your love. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.